You're listening to 3CR Radio. And
From their new EP, Disintegrate, that was Melbourne queer pop duo Nightfruit with the first single off the EP, Mine. And you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we chat with Kitty from Nightfruit and we chat with activists Jacob Thomas and Joel Murray. 3CR. While Kitty and Prani comprise Melbourne queer duo Nightfruit, and Kitty begins their interview by describing what their new single, Mine, is about. So we wrote this song basically about uh, bodily autonomy. So I guess when you're in relationships and you're seeking that kind of connection where there's trust that's really solid so that no, no one has to sacrifice their needs, whether that be for like commitment or for independence and you both kind of are intact and you have that autonomy and it's about kind of rebuilding that trust when it gets sort of tampered with or altered in some way and that kind of journey through vulnerability to rebuild that connection. Tell us about yourself and Prani, who are your wonderful act, Nightfruit. <laughs> yes. Um, so uh, me and Prani have known each other for I think about like eight years now or seven years. So pretty long-term friends and yeah, a very like healing friendship in my life that I'm so thankful for, um, especially in 2020 when it's been a bit of a shit show year and you need those um those nourishing relationships really mean so much um and yeah a couple of years ago we started making music together we basically have always really bonded over music so we like becoming friends would often go like out together to see like djs like sort of in like the queer melbourne music scene seeing bands um prani was in a former like rock band uh, like punk rock that um, would gig around Melbourne and so music was always really like formative in our friendship in that way um, and would often like make little playlists together and just had really similar like vision for the kind of music that we wanted to see more of in the world and we get really excited when we like found new music together um, we DJed together for a bit and then yeah just thought like we'd always wanted to make music together so a couple of years ago we finally started writing songs together and yeah now we're so proud to have finally put this um, EP together of our songs. It's a great EP. You define your music as electronic witch pop. Can you define that for us? Yeah, um, we basically were kind of like trying to find a definition for it. Um, I think we really liked witch pop because we both love just kind of witchy stuff like tarot and astrology and those kinds of things. Like that's part of our, um, I guess, our personalities outside of music. Um, and yeah, pop music is like a huge um impact on us for both of our like trajectories of musicians just coming from like early 2000s pop music and love of like you know Britney and like big kind of like superstar pop but then also loving like a lot more I guess like alternative electronica that's like darker like The Knife and Seb Lazar and like Sophie like PC music um so kind of yeah we kind of were looking to find terminology to define that and which pop really like hit that sweet spot for us um but yeah I guess we we're very drawn to anything that has that like bubblegum pop feel but also something that's a bit unique and a bit darker like a bit of an edge to it if you will so tell us what roles you perform when you put a track together um so the tracks for the ep really went on like a big journey i think because when we started 
um, writing music, we had like a much more limited skill set because we um, had both come from uh, previous bands, but not so much electronic music production. So we were really like starting with the bare minimum skill set. And so it took a while for like our vision to really line up with our ability to create. And so, yeah, the tracks that we have now have been like reworked like quite extensively. But most of them really started with lyrics. So I think our love of like storytelling and of having like an actual message that we want to explore in the songs was really at the heart of each track. So we'd start with kind of a vibe or something like we wanted to talk about, um, whether it's like an experience or a relationship or something, and then kind of building the song around that. So wherever that takes us, we just sort of follow. Yeah. I hear a really strong electronic 80s influence in mine and it's almost like a like Depeche Mode. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely a lot of 80s synth inspiration um, that we've drawn from for sure. Yeah, yeah. So who are your, your musical influences? there other 80s acts that you're into? Um, yeah, definitely. I think a lot of like old school like 80s, like pop as well, like Madonna, like a lot of 90s stuff, um, like Kylie. Um, and then I guess bringing that into like more kind of contemporary, like futuristic pop, like Umru and Sophie and those kind of like PC music, um, like musicians that are kind of like putting a bit of a twist on pop music and making it um, kind of just have a bit of a different journey. Um, yeah, Carolyn Polachek, um, Abra, yeah, and then just lots of local um, Melbourne acts as well have been, like, huge, hugely influential for us, like um, Habits and Pillow Pro, Spunk Gunk, um, Soft Approach, Katie Spirit. Yeah, very lucky to be in the Melbourne music world where there's just, like, spoiled for choice and have, like, seen so many amazing musicians play and really drawn inspiration from that. Yeah. And there seems to be so many queer musicians in Melbourne who are actually finding the resources to be able to emerge further during this pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's like a real like shining light of hope through the pandemic is like seeing creatives um, helping each other and like giving each other like resources and like working on things together, working on projects together to kind of like upskill, uh, like Skillshare um yeah I think that's really really special and important in this time of like isolation <laughs> um to have those connections and to have like a community of creatives who are like interested in uplifting each other as opposed to like an exclusive attitude that doesn't want you know other people to enter the space or to succeed instead it's like very giving and um yeah uplifting for sure. You mentioned that mine explores issues around body autonomy. Uh, what are some of the other issues that other tracks explore in your EP, Disintegrate? Yeah, um, so I think all of the tracks kind of like go on a similar journey of exploring the like complexities of vulnerability um, and the relationship between like power and vulnerability. So in like the power that you have to find within yourself to be vulnerable and the strength that that takes to tell your truth and to be authentic um so I think yeah the songs really go through a bit of a journey that relates to mine and Prani's like personal experiences of really coming into our own learning about our own needs our own boundaries how to uphold them how to then be able to uphold other people's as well um yeah Yeah. it sounds like gender identity is an issue that very much is a thread throughout your music too 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think like as queer people and myself, a non-binary person, it just is intrinsically part of what we create and the stories that we tell. And I think having a space to do that through music has been like really huge and important. Um, and again, something that I've seen other amazing like gender non-conforming musicians in Melbourne do. And I think that them creating space to do that has allowed us to do what we're doing and to feel more like confident um, in like having our sharing our experiences as well. Um, yeah, and it's just really cool that there's more and more people um, talking about that kind of thing through their art and music. I mean, there always have been, but I feel like there's it's getting more um, more of a light shine on it, which is really important. So tell us about your songwriting process. I mean, I know so many different artists have so many different ways of writing a song. Yeah. Uh, is there a particular kind of method that you use or do they just kind of, you know, come in flows or jibs and drabs? Like tell us how it works for you guys. Um, I feel like we both really love writing. We love writing like poetry. So I feel like we often have just like lyrics at hand in like our notes section of our phone. And so when we've like met up to work on a track together, we'll kind of like get up the lyrics, talk about like how would we want to like deliver, what kind of package would we want to deliver this like story in? Like how would we want to tell it musically? Um, and through the whole songwriting process, because we're coming to it in very like DIY, like learning as we went kind of thing. Um, we often would just be learning about like, okay, what kind of like key should we use? Like what, um, you know, what kind of like BPM would suit this? And so kind of like building a song whilst also learning how songs are built as we were going at the start. And then I think once we got more on a roll, we'd sort of like, it would just come more naturally and really like flow once we'd sit down, we'd kind of have more of a developed skill set to be able to really just like work on a piece more intuitively as opposed to like staggering and trying to kind of um, figure out how to do everything from scratch. So it's definitely got more, yeah, the, the process has become a lot more fluid, um, which is really exciting. Yeah. And you've released the EP yourselves rather than through a label, yeah? Yeah, 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 all independent, yeah. Yeah, it's been really cool to just be able to learn all of these skills and to know that it's, like, possible to do these things for yourself um, and to, yeah, have that, like, rewarding experience of knowing that we, yeah, did it ourselves, which is nice. Um, yeah, Simona did the mixing on the album and Toya uh, did the mastering. They did an amazing job. So it was really exciting working with them as well. So it was a great queer collaboration all round. Absolutely, yeah. Just queers doing amazing things. <laughs> Very lucky. <laughs> yeah. So what's next for you after after Disintegrate? Well, we'd love to do some gigs when that's possible, but that's, you know, who's to say when that will be. Um, but I think just definitely continuing to write. We've already been working on, like, some collabs with friends whilst in lockdown. Um, we have a, have a good friend who their, um, their name is Light Transmissions and they've done a really amazing remix of the song Mine, so that'll come out down the track um and yeah basically just we just want to ride the wave of creating I think actually having this EP to focus on throughout um lockdown has been a real godsend to just kind of have something to really like put our attention and focus into and actually have the time to really like dedicate to it as well which has been like a, a silver lining of this um strange world that we live in <laughs> um but yeah definitely want to keep riding that wave and you know, just keep making music together and see where it grows now that we're, you know, developing our skill set more and our refining our sound, I guess, matching up with our vision more, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. Certainly does. The uh, <laughs> the remix of mine sounds exciting. I almost get like an 80s kind of 12-inch record vibe. Yeah, it's definitely got an 80s vibe. It's definitely like bumped up the B- BPM, very fast, dancing kind of vibe, and it's good. <laughs> very excited. And I can really sense your backgrounds as DJs in the track as well. Oh, love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we had so much fun DJing. We like went to DJ school, which um, this person, Macquarie, an amazing local DJ ran um, at the Fitzroy Learning Center. And yeah, we would sort of just do like, yeah, a lot of 80s pop, like techno, just kind of bizarre sets where we just throw a lot of different things together. And I feel like that has also come out in our music for sure. So it sounds like you have a great capacity to be experimental with your work and to see where that goes. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, me and Prani's friendship has been so important in, like, allowing us that vulnerable space to be really experimental and, like, not feel, like, judged or scared of, like, you know, doing something that's a bit crazy or silly. Instead, we can just, like, throw ideas out and really, like, work together in a kind of, yeah, vulnerable experimental way, which I think is, um, yeah, been really empowering to have that, like, freedom with someone to work with yeah well you both should be very proud of disintegrate it's a wonderful ep thank you thank so much you. kitty for talking to me today no I'm worries. my pleasure thank you so much all the best well jacob thomas is an activist performer and academic and jacob begins our interview by describing what they've been up to during lockdown um, I, I was thinking about this, uh, recently where I was just like, oh, I feel like I've just done nothing, um, all lockdown, you know, I've just, I've just been napping, I've just been lying in bed. And then I realized I've actually been doing, um, probably far too many things. Um, so I've made, um, uh, about 400 face masks for people, um, which has been really, really delightful. Um, I think, uh, what else have I done? I've been teaching, uh, so I'm an academic, uh, in the university sector, recently got published. I've been getting my baking skills back up, which is nice. Um, a bunch of sewing and then, uh, getting ready to move house. So far too oh, many wow. things. <laughs> Let's start with the face masks. Uh, who are you giving them to? Uh, so they it basically started off recognizing that um, there was going to be a delay with some uh, appropriate PPE from DHHS, um, and yeah, I can sew. Um, I wouldn't sound brilliant, but I'm, I'm, I can do it. You know, um, people might disagree, but yeah, I'll be I'll try and be modest. Um, and so with that, I was just like, yeah, cool. Let's like get these donated to whoever needs them. So we had um, some people contact from um street uh like initially these were made for the black lives matter protest so uh my friend jessica and i just made a bunch of masks just in case people needed them uh just so that people weren't going to get um caught out on the day uh not having appropriate ppe and we just wanted to support war um who are a phenomenal organization um if people don't know who they are look them up but um we then, yeah, realised that after the Black Lives Matter protest here in Melbourne, we went, oh, yeah, cool, other people need them. So then um, I made some for Street, uh, made some for um, a few other organisations whose names escape me at the moment, but we did some for Out and About, so for our LGBTI seniors. Um, and then it's kind of just skyrocketed from there. So then we had orders and then um, I've sent, I think we've got about 100 more to do out of that 400 to send to Shepparton, which is my hometown, um, who are in some desperate need of some PPE as well, which is really nice. So it's just we didn't do it for profit. We just did it for the sake that, you know, you support your community in a time of crisis. 
So you've really immersed yourself in so many social justice campaigns. You haven't been resting on your laurels at all. Well, no. I mean, I, it's, it's pretty standard for me. I um, <laughs> be of a social justice you know, addict, if you will. Um, but, you know, like I've been um, working in the social justice space for 10 years now um, as an activist, as an advocate. I work in the United Nations. I just recently stepped away from an international position in the Commonwealth. So, you know, this is the opportune time to really get onto social justice measures um, because, you know, this pandemic has definitely reinvigorated and re-exposed a lot of um, injustices, a lot of inequalities, a lot of oppressive measures that have always existed now that have been exacerbated and really brought out to the light where I think we just can't ignore them anymore. We can't sit behind the comfort of our privilege. So what a time to just really lean into that and try and do our best for the world. Absolutely. Tell us about the international role you just stepped back from. Uh, so that was with the Commonwealth Youth Gender and Equality Network, or CYGEN for short, C-Y-G-E-N for those of you playing at home. Um, so CYGEN was established in uh, 2015 in Valletta, Malta. Uh, so I was an initial uh, an inaugural member of that network. Uh, CYGEN was established because the Commonwealth had uh, introduced um, a new gender policy, but there was nothing that was youth-centred within that. So the Royal Commonwealth Society, uh, based in London, uh, basically did a call out for a bunch of young activists. So a suite of us from uh, what was then 53, then went to 52, back to 53, and is now 54 countries <laughs> that are part of the voluntary Commonwealth membership all got together. We uh, designed a policy platform that was then endorsed. We then took that to the heads of government meeting, also in Malta later that year. Um, and then over time, I was really uh, honoured to take up a position of the SOGI expert, uh, so sexual orientation, gender identity and uh, expression position within the network. So I was focusing on um, LGBTQA plus matters all around the Commonwealth uh, from a youth perspective, did some stuff on the Yogi Carter principles, um, did a lot of speaking engagements at um, uh positions such as uh, World Health Organization, um, AIDS 2018, um, and then was really, really honoured to be offered the coordinator position, so that international overall uh, leadership position, and I got to lead an absolutely phenomenal team. Um, it was meant to be, I think, for three months. It ended up being for about a year and a half, if not a little bit more. Um, and then we were able to hand that over to a phenomenal Nigerian woman. Her name's um, Ola Abugan, and she's just absolutely brilliant. Um, and so it's really, really nice that the Global South is leading back into uh, you know, this incredibly important piece of work. Um, and, you know, SciGen has been you know, pivotal, I think, for not just my work, but for so many young people who haven't been able to necessarily see themselves within gender equality policy and practice um, to have that validated. But, you know, we've been able to see people like Natasha Stotter-Spoyer, you know, Dr. Sharman Stone. Um, we've spoken at the United Nations several times in New York. We've written policy agendas for, um, you know, EU councils, AU councils, you know, just the bandy and the amount of phenomenal positive work that all these young people under the age of 30 have done um, in the space of five years is absolutely phenomenal, to say the least. And, of course, you're still working, as you said, in the university sector. Tell us about your work there. Uh, yes, um, still working full-time, which um, I'm not going to snub that because that is very much a privilege at the moment. Um, but, yeah, on top of that, I work in international partnerships uh, at Monash University. So I'm in the Monash Warwick Alliance. And what that is is a partnership between two top 100 universities that focuses across research excellence, 
um, education opportunity for our students and our staff, um, as well as student-led initiatives and uh, funding schemes. So with that, we've been able to see, I think, we've been able to see phenomenal investment in research. Um, again, we've had really, really positive uh, engagement in that capacity as well with um, you know, the UK High Commission here in Australia. We just signed an ongoing agreement, which is really, really exciting. So it's a really strong, uh, valuable partnership that just keeps going and going and going. Um, and on top of that, I'm also teaching, I'm also researching, I'm in a couple of different labs. Um, so it's just, it's just full throttle, you know. It's just, there's no stopping at this moment in time, apparently. <laughs> You also, and I don't know how you do it, but you also find time for your performances as well. And I know you've got one this week. Uh, we've got to put on drag face later today. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, I think um, what, so I will just say this is just like, I love performing. I've been performing for, I think um, we're about two decades now. I'm 30. So, you know, someone do the math, but um, yeah. <laughs> I started in musicals and then kind of got into drag and I was pretty lazy about it. I was just like, oh, look, it's just fun. It's just whatever. And I think drag should just be fun as well. Like you just, you're essentially just, you know, taking the mick. Um, and then, yeah, like I did a few like live performances and everything. Like I, I've done a wedding, which was very exciting. I did one of the first gay weddings um, here in Australia, which was very, very exciting and fun. Um, but then obviously with COVID happening, I was just like, oh yeah, cool. Like, yeah, we'll just put that aside. I won't get out my $5 wigs. Um, and my, my terrible trash bag couture. Um, but what's happened, obviously, is that so many people are just like, no, we need something exciting, something a bit um, uh, joyful, I guess, to engage with. So what I've been able to do is that with my teaching of my students, I had a presentation yesterday to 130 healthcare experts. Um, I've just been putting drag face on. Um, and it's just made that education opportunity just so much more exciting for people. It's just been really relaxing doing it over Zoom, of course. Um, but just, I don't know, it's, you know, there's it's, it's so much worry and there's so much concern and, you know, discomfort at the moment. And all of that's absolutely valid. We're in a very traumatic time. What I think's nice to be able to do is to, you know, do something for me which is cathartic, which is sewing or, you know, styling a wig or putting a face on. Um, and then just meeting strangers and talking to them, which could be a really, really uncomfortable topic, like the one that I spoke about yesterday, which is youth leadership in sustainable development, um, or you know, when I was teaching in Mauritius last week <laughs> to a group of phenomenal high school students, um, or what I'm doing tonight, which is hosting a trivia show. You know, it's just whatever the case might be, it's been kind of nice to um, have something creative as an outlet that um, makes other people feel good because I could do that in my own time, but it's so nice being able to share that space with other people um, and to let them let their guard down a little bit, to not worry for an hour or two and to just be present together. It's really, really wholesome. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Jacob Thomas on 3CRs in your face. Tell us about how your gender identity kind of, you know, fuels your own sense of empowerment that enables you to do these incredible things. Yeah, good question. Um, uh, you probably should have mentioned to everyone. I think I've been on 3CR before, but, you know, they, them are the pronouns. I am non-binary. Um, so, I, look, it's an interesting one. I'm try, I'll try and not make it too academic um, as well, which I'm known to do these days. Um, I wasn't a smart kid, but I've turned into a nerd, and I'm really just, I'm really just embracing that these days. Um, but, look, I sort of see you know, my experiences, you know, like I know from a personal point I really struggled with 
um, you know, identification with, you know, uh, self-determination, really kind of understanding myself. Like I've been out as non-binary now for, what is it now? Oh, maybe seven years, eight years. I've lost count. I just know they've all been really, really happy in the end. Um, but, you know, it's like we live in a really you know, restricted binary world. We live in a really, you know, uh, what we call hegemonic, patriarchal, you know, white, Western, heterosexist space. I tried not to make it academic and then I just lent right in. But to, you know, with this is trying to recognise that, you know, so many people are put down um, and disenfranchised and oppressed because of their gender, you know, just on that. And then there's everything else that comes in through an intersectional lens. Um, and for me, I just went, well, you look, you know, I know that I'm struggling with this and, you know, I'm a white kid who lives in Melbourne. What's the rest of the world going through right now? And so, you know, I engaged, I listened, um, you know, tried to be you know, an ally to, um, you know, my community and everyone else. And I think that's kind of just really instilled, again, that point of social justice, I guess, is just like, you know, gender is something that we should be able to be celebrating we should be able to have that freedom of expression, of identification to be celebrated, not just tolerated. Um, and so a lot of my work now has been around the rights of um, transgender diverse kids. Um, you know, I sit on a bunch of different advocacy projects for that as well. Um, you know, looking, I'm doing a piece of research at the moment for the rights of um, LGBTIQA plus young people in out-of-home care um, because that's a really gender-restricted space. You know, a lot of the work that I'm doing in, say, um, uh, you know, gender equality more broadly is trying to disrupt and sort of adjust, you know, how we're viewing gender, coming back to, you know, the um, – and it's not just me. Like, I will just make that really, really clear. It's just people tend to like to listen to a white person apparently, which is a lot of stuff to really unpack there. And if we're not acknowledging that, then, you know, maybe we should <laughs> get back to yeah, checking that privilege. But, you know, it's there's so much work that's being done uh, through you know, First Nations peoples, through Indigenous groups, through um, communities all around the world who are, reclaim, are trying to reclaim their space um, of you know, a non-restrictive, non-binary, um, you know, not, you know, not colonial, <laughs> imperialist sort of perspective, right? And so, you know, what I can do and what I'm asked to do and what I offer to do, I don't just do it for the sake of it, but what I offer and get asked to do is to, you know, to support that. You know, so, I'll, like, you know, I'll write reports, we'll take that to human rights spaces, we'll adjust that. Like, I'm doing my Masters of International Development at the moment at the same time because I have so much spare time. Um, and, you know, it's bringing that into the university academies. It's bringing it into research spaces. It's trying to just get people to recognise that the world is just not the way in which we comfortably view it and that, you know, we have been around for millennia. It's just in our own unique space and way is that, you know, some of us are, you know, discovering this, you know, now, like myself in the past decade, and other people have had this identity of theirs, this livelihood, this your unique individual and collective experience wiped out and we just and they deserve to be able to reclaim that in this space so that's just what i try and do i make it sound like you know that's just it it's, it's really simple guys don't worry about it but it is you know you, know, you have to have empathy for yourself and that should instill some empathy um in the world around you to be able to do good and great things so that's just what i try and do as much as i can Another group that you have huge empathy for is refugees. You must be very concerned about their plight in Australia uh, and the lack of resources that the Australian government's giving them for those people who are awaiting their application decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a, 
I, I'll be frank, like, you know, it's not an area of expertise that I would say that I hold. Um, but I don't necessarily think you always have to have expertise to, you know, I'm trying not to swear, so I do apologise. I'm trying to be very, very um, not me. Um, but, you know, just, um, you, you should just care. You should care about people. I just don't understand why we're not doing that. You know, I spoke um, at the Qantas AGM last year um, about Qantas's participation in the um, involuntary movement of people seeking refugee and asylum status here in Australia. Um and it definitely ruffled some feathers. I think it was the largest um, stakeholder vote that they'd ever had for that motion, which is phenomenal. Um, I think it like times by eight or something like that in the vote, which is unheard of, which we're really, really proud to say. It didn't change, but, you know, it was great. Um, but it's just, you know, I, I think we've heard the narrative and you know, I think we've heard all the um, disposition around it as well. But, you know, it's just, we call ourselves the lucky country, but who are we helping at the end of the day? You know, it's just... Um, you know, Australia just has one of the most harshest policies in the entire world for people seeking refuge and asylum, um, especially during a pandemic. Like, it's just, like, one, it's already gotten worse. The divisions of care and provision of equity has absolutely exacerbated. Um, we see brilliant organisations who shouldn't have to be doing what they're doing, but they are doing what they're doing to support um, these, I don't like saying vulnerable communities all the time because it's such a it's such a punch down. Um, but uh, I'll try and say it is that you know, these you know, worthwhile humans who deserve care and love and support in any time, not just a time of crisis, you know, these organisations are there for them. Um, and you know, it's, I just don't know how to put it any more simply than just we need to be looking after each other because you know, I think we forget how sensitive the world is. I think we forget that you know, so many of us, myself included, are just like, you know, one, you know, missed paycheck away from being in poverty, you know, that we don't know what's going to happen when it comes to warfare. We don't know what's going to happen when it comes to, you know, climate change. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, we're, we're under this guise and this assumption that that won't affect me. Um, but, you know, you should be setting people up to succeed. You should be setting people up as much as you can to support them because, you know, you don't know if that's going to come for you one day. You know, and I think you know, if you do good things now, then good things will come for you later down the track. Um, and I just, yeah, I just think we just need to be looking after our, you know, our global families a lot more because that's what they are. They're our global families. Um, and they just, every person deserves the right to seek asylum, to seek refuge, to live in a safe space. Um, and to have a home, to have access to all the things that they need to live a fulfilling life. And we're not giving it to them. And I just think that's you know, morally abandoned. You mentioned Black Lives Matter before. You must be very disappointed with the Australian government's response to it. I mean, like, yes, <laughs> in, sh in short. I think I'm, I know, it's, I'm, I'll try not to take up space on this one because it's not, it's not really, um, you know, something that, you know, I need to be talking about too much. I think we've heard so much from black people and from people of colour, you know, make these points and make these claims. What I will say as, um, you know, I guess of leaning onto the nationality as a citizen here is just, you know, it's, I just don't, again, it, it sort of comes to this point, I'm being very unarticulate because I'm just annoyed, <laughs> I think, but it's just, like again, we've got so many. We've got so many indigenous deaths in custody. We've got so much harm. We've got so much racial profiling that happens in this country. 
you know, across these lands that we stole. We've got so many um, communities who might be recently arrived or, you know, second, third generation in on this land who, you know, just, again, deserve that right to dignity, who don't deserve to be, you know, um, impacted by police brutality, who, you know, don't, I mean, I don't think anyone deserves that. I don't think anyone really deserves, you know, to be harmed by a force that considers itself a point of, you know, justice and peace, um, or to just be harmed by anyone for that matter. I mean, it's just, like, racism is absolutely toxic and, you know, it is our responsibility as, you know, not black and not person of colour, you know, communities to, you know, be actively anti-racist in that space. You know, it's just there's no room for jokes anymore. There's no room for, um, you know, belittling. That It's just harm. That's just what it is. And as a queer person, I know, you know, the importance of allyship and to stand up for people. And I know what that public harm and perception does. Um, we saw that in that marriage survey. Um, we, like, it, a, a government should just care. A government should care about all of its citizens. It should always be, I'm not just criticising the Australian government here, this is any government, but it's just a government is meant to be set up, ideally, to support the citizens in which who voted it in to represent them equally and wholeheartedly. That's meant to be the point. And we're not doing that. We haven't been doing that for a really long time. And, you know, as far as anyone, any of us should be concerned, yeah, Black Lives Matter. They just do. You know, whatever the circumstance, straight down the baseline, they just matter. And that's going to have to be it. And if we're going to start saying that, no, that's divisive, no, that's uncomfortable, no, we don't want to do that, then we just need to check our privilege over and over and over again until we can comfortably say, yeah, Black Lives Matter. And that's it. Jacob Thomas, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's always wonderful to get your insights. You're so welcome. I hope my rants and rambles um, inspired someone today. (laughs) Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Joel Murray is an activist and policymaker who recently came out as non-binary, and I spoke with them this week. Joel, tell us what the experience has been like coming out as non-binary recently. Well, it's been an interesting experience, and it's been quite a bit of a journey, actually. Um, I think certainly uh, what might have prompted it uh, a little bit was my move from Melbourne to Sydney 
um, when you come to a new city, there's an opportunity to really just uh, sort of stamp what, how you want people to see you and how um, when you know when they meet you, it's a lot easier to say um, at the beginning, oh, by the way, I'm queer or um, uh, as opposed to you know being a gay gay man as um, I identified in Melbourne. And I think as well, uh, what I've been doing is really like connecting with other trans and gender diverse people and hearing their stories and um, hearing the way that they talk about their own gender experience. And for me, um, I was listening to some content um, on this great um, website called Trans Hub. And I was like, oh, hang on a sec. That that that's really similar to what I've experienced or how I felt or what the questions that I've been asking. Um, so for, I guess for me, it was this realization that, oh, okay, like um, people who are really quite solid in their gender identity don't really ask questions about their gender. Um, but at the same time, it was like all these experiences that I'd had as a young person, I'd always thought, oh, I'm different because I'm, of my sexuality um, when in fact, if I take a step back and I look at what people were saying to me, which was like, no, you're not a girl. No, you're not a boy. Well, actually they were kind of right. <laughs> um, that I, I don't feel either strongly male or female. Um, so for me, non-binary is about, yeah, not identifying with on the binary. And I've got, which is quite different to say some of my friends who feel more gender fluid, which is, you know, feeling, um, experiencing gender across that on on the that binary on that binary, but across the across the spectrum. When I think of you, I think of resilience because coming out in in in, in numerous ways has been a, a lifelong process for you. Tell me about it. Um, yeah, it's like I do I do laugh that it's kind of this is like my fourth maybe my fourth time coming out or maybe even my fifth time coming out because it's like, you know, coming out as gay and then um, and then I'm coming out as living with HIV and then coming out living with hep C and then coming out as queer and then coming out as non-binary. Um, and I suppose, like, I think it's been a little, like, even though it's easier, say, for, like, I had a conversation with my parents um, a few weeks ago, like, when they came up and visited me, we had that discussion, and we're still having that conversation um, because I don't think it's something that can just, that they can understand in just, like, it just in a short amount of time. I think it's going to take them a little while to get their heads around it, mostly because they don't have, like, a frame of reference. Um, but um, it does get to a point, like, my mum my was like, oh, well, you know, you came out as a gay man and now like what's happening? And I was like, well, it really just goes to show that like our identities and the way that we perceive ourselves can change over the time, over time. But for me, I think it was more less about changing over time and more about having a language now to describe what I was experiencing. And so if I was a young person living today, maybe I would have identified that non-binary gender experience quite young rather than associating with my sexuality per se. Do you feel like this coming out has been easier because you've been through the other coming outs? In some ways, yes, but in other ways, no. Um, probably be, probably because this realisation has been like quite um, 
impactful on, you know, some really old, deeply held trauma. Um, and so in a way, like coming to the surface has been great that it's finally like, oh, that is like that, you know, my gender is this like one thing that I could never put up, like, but it's, you know, it's like this one thing that has been causing me um, distress, but I didn't realize it. And so now knowing that is like quite a relief, but at the same time, it's still like bringing up a lot of emotions. And um, even just like the conversations I'm having with my, um, you know, with my, my family, um, you know, my brother and uh, my parents has, has been a bit difficult um, because yeah, just, I think, you know, I'm working, I'm working and living and breathing this, you know, I guess this language and concepts around gender experience and they're not necessarily privy to those same conversations. So I've just got to remember that, like, I've got to go back to the basics and talking about, you know, gender as a social construct and talking about, like, why, why, why do we have gendered clothes? Why do we have gendered toys? Why do we have gendered pronouns um you know it's interesting because like um I've, I've been thinking about like the binary in language and so for example we've got sibling as a gender gender neutral term um and there's cousin as a gender neutral term but there's no real like gender neutral neutrality around like aunt and uncle or um niece or nephew other than to say oh that's my they're my brother's children. <laughs> um, yeah, and so it's just it's just been an interesting exploration. Um, yeah, I think also at the same time, like I think you know there is particularly in Sydney, I've noticed this like inherent thing around like what my experience is compared to like my friends who are like gay men, and I feel like our experiences and even culturally like there's and socially there is a difference um and perhaps that difference was like not as prominent in melbourne like maybe yeah i mean maybe it's just about the way that our communities are structured um you know in melbourne i felt like you know everyone's kind of like spread out and you can go you know you expect like it's quite easy to explore different suburbs in Melbourne, whereas in Sydney everything's just like very much kept to like your locale, your little your little suburb, and um, communities tend to cluster around that. Um, and so I'm like in the inner west, and that's you know that's you know there's a lot of queer people living in the inner west compared to say like the inner east, where it's it, you know it's very capital G gay. Wow, so there's so much going on there. Uh, it sounds exhausting. Yeah, look, and I think that's you know that is something my my brother said to me. He's like, "What happened to a simple life?" And I was like, "Yeah, look, I mean, understanding gender is really important, and understanding the way that gender plays out in society is important." Um, I think about um, you know, particularly like work, like domestic and family violence. All of all of that, all of the drivers of domestic and family violence are around you know rigid gender stereotypes um, and heteronormativity. Uh, heterosexism and homophobia and transphobia so actually like to understand the way that gender and gender roles play out um in a social policy space um is you know it's it's important Three 
was listening to an interview with Joel Murray on 3CRs in your face. And you really highlighted before that we just don't have the language. And of course, if we did have that language, you know, uh, for those familial terms that you talked about before, it would probably make it much easier. But really, you're a pioneer, like all non-binary people are when they come out. Well, thanks, thanks, James. Um, I, I mean, I, what I quite like about uh, meeting other non-binary people is like, even though we might describe similar experiences the way that we express our gender is very different um, and there's no real homogenization which is quite nice um, yeah that there's no like sense of like needing to conform or needing to perform these particular gender roles um, and which is yeah I mean it I once upon a time I started an education degree because I wanted to be a teacher um, yeah, I um, didn't pursue that obviously, but um, you know, one of the first things that we learned in edu- in the first year of education was around that gender is a social construct. Um, so when I hear media commentators, um, you know, talking about gender and talking about this idea that there's you know there's only two genders and um, you know boys will be boys and girls will be girls and all this kind of stuff, it just kind of it further <laughs> like. In one, in one sense, they're saying gender is not socially constructed, and yet then they're talking about these um, very socially constructed ideas of gender. So, yeah, um, yeah, I just think it's yeah, I just think it's interesting, and I, I think sometimes you know, um, as well, I wonder, you know, um, you know, particularly around the the media heat that has been around on trans and gender diverse people, particularly since um, the marriage um, equality campaigns, Um, you know, there's been a lot of like, there's been a lot of pressure from the right wing media and right wing organizations um, really kind of attacking, attacking our experiences and um, uh, minimizing our experiences and kind of dismissing them. And I did, I, I go to I wonder what their what their purpose is like they say that you know perhaps they're you know trying to protect young young children and yet um, I feel like their actions are actually harming particularly young trans and gender diverse people so what 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 is actually their agenda um, um, but in saying that like even though we've been under attack as a community uh, the resilience that I see among trans and gender diverse people is just incredible Um the ability for us to lean in and support each other and um yeah and just be there for each other it has been particularly during you know not only what has been a difficult media environment but also um you know covid where um yeah we've had to socially isolate we haven't been necessarily able to like in person connect with our our families of choice um but despite that, we've still been able to show like incredible resilience. What's it been like as a person living with HIV coming out as non-binary? Do you think that's made a difference? Do you think that's made you more resilient? Uh, or does it make you feel more isolated in some ways? Like what are some of the impacts of, of those two identities? Yeah, um, I think certainly like my resilience has definitely been um strengthened through my relationship with living with HIV and um, I feel like my I wasn't always as resilient as I am now it's definitely been taken me it's definitely been a journey across the last decade of um, you know of 
dealing with the stigma and the impact of HIV. Um, and then also the, the impact of HIV becoming less and less in my life. So, um, you know, when I go out into uh, and do public talks about HIV, I, I often say, you know, my mental health is more of a concern for me on a daily or weekly basis than my HIV is. I sort of just take a pill and then I don't really have to do anything other than get a blood test every six months. And so I'm really grateful in the in, in, for that. But in terms of like, um, being non-binary and or being trans non-binary because I do feel like non-binary is a trans identity because um, like non-binary is not congruent with the gender that I was presumed at birth being male. So yeah, non-binary is a trans identity. Um, but at the same time, like I haven't necessarily been like talking about being non-binary when I talk about HIV, like last night I was at a university giving a talk to first year medical students and I actually didn't like discuss my gender or my sexuality at all. Um, but I did talk about my behaviours and, you know, and, I, and as part of these these talks, we talk about how we, you know, how we contracted HIV, which for me was like male, male, sex, male to male sex. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how... Um, relevant my gender identity is at this stage in terms of my story and whether or not um particularly like i thought for medical students like maybe me disclosing that i was non-binary could act as a barrier to them hearing my story or this like um taking on board the information that i was presenting them so i think at, at this stage it's just like very um i'm still kind of testing waters uh in terms of like where where it is comfortable to disclose um where i don't need to disclose and um yeah even just that like the yeah i haven't really thought too much about the relationship between being non-binary and, and living with hiv have you found that coming out as non-binary has actually improved your mental health um i think uh in some ways yes um, as I was describing earlier, it kind of has brought up a lot of other things from my past. So I think it's, I think it, um, as I continue to do the work, um, then, and as time goes on, I think it will be beneficial for my mental health. Um, I certainly feel more in my skin, like more comfortable in who I am as a person. And it does feel like the jigsaw pieces are all finally starting to come together in the right way. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely there has been like this theme my entire life of like trying to work out how I fit into the world. And I think this is just like that one final, one final missing piece. This was the one final missing piece that I've now, yeah, I feel quite comfortable in, in where I am in the world. And have you found that the reactions from your friendship network has been mostly positive, has been mostly affirming? It's been really affirming, actually, um, in terms of my friendship network. Um, my, my kind of family of choice were overwhelmingly supportive and um, it didn't really come as a surprise. So people who really know me really well were like, uh, yeah, duh, um, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting reaction. <laughs> I'm kind of like, could you have told me? <laughs> um, 
but yeah, look, I think it's just like one of those things. It's like when you're coming out, you know, if you're coming out as um, sexuality diverse, then, you know, sometimes no amount of someone else telling you something is going to um, click and unless you work it out for yourself or um, go through those life experiences that you need to do to, like, learn those lessons, I think, yeah. Is that why people didn't say anything because they felt you had to work it out for yourself rather than them assuming perhaps and, and, and telling you? Um, maybe, um, but maybe also, again, it's sort of a bit like, you know, this is definitely much more within our vocabulary and um, we're having discussions at a community level that are much more inclusive of trans and gender diverse people. You know, maybe five years ago, we might not, five or ten years ago, we might not have or I might not have had the language and certainly my friends maybe not might not have had the language um, in order to just describe that. Um, yeah. So it sounds like the point that we're at in history uh, and having that language more as a community uh, has probably enabled you to have the impetus to come out. Do you think, do you think that impacted on the timing as well as having dealt with all those other issues that you come out with? Yeah, I think I think it's about the it's about the timing about what's happening in the community. Um, um, it's connecting with other people with similar experiences and understanding, or having a language around those experiences. Um, but then also, I think you know, like I think, every, it, yeah, I think in some ways, like things happen when in this order that they're meant to happen. So it's like maybe. Even if I had the language, um, you know, say five or ten years ago, I was, you know, that was that how I was experiencing my gender then? Um, you know, I can't really, it's it's hard to kind of look back and uh, like in some ways as a young person, it was it's much easier to see me as a non-binary person as a young person, but then like there was a certain amount of my wanting to fit in and wanting to, yeah, wanting to felt like I belonged to a community and whether that was, um, you know, back in the days when I was like doing a lot of, um, you know, engaging in a lot of sexualized drug use. So the kind of, you know, that was my community for a while or um, maybe it was other people living with HIV. Um, and I still feel absolutely connected to other people living with HIV. Like that, I think that is the thing about HIV is it doesn't matter what my gender is. Like at the end of the day, I'm always going to be living with the virus and, um, and that connects me in some way to every other person who is also living with HIV. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's just interesting the way that things evolve or shift over time. Joel Murray, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR and sharing your story. It's been totally inspirational. Thanks a lot for having me, James. 3CR. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
You love me.